Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Welcome to this evening's installment of the National Humanities Center Virtual Book Club Series. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this evening's event. It's been my practice in these virtual book clubs to begin uh, each of the evenings with a poem. So tonight I've chosen a poem from one of my favorite poets, W.S. Merwin, and the title is Rain Light. All day, the stars watch from long ago. My mother said, I am going now. When you are alone, you will be all right. Whether or not you know, you will know. Look at the old house in the dawn rain. All the flowers are forms of water. The sun reminds them through a white cloud, touches the patchwork spread on the hill, the wash colors of the afterlife that lived there long before you were born. See how they wake without a question, even though the whole world is burning. Our guest this evening is Bart Ehrman. James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of over 30 books, six of which have been New York Times bestsellers. His textbooks have become standards for teaching about the New Testament. And he's widely considered to be the leading scholar of early Christianity alive today. His work has been featured in Time, The New Yorker, the Washington Post, and other print media. He's appeared on NBC's Dateline, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, CNN, The History Channel, National Geographic, The Discovery Channel, the BBC, major NPR shows, and other top media outlets. Bart has twice been a fellow at the National Humanities Center, most recently in 2018-19 when he was working on Heaven and Hell, a History of the Afterlife, the book he has graciously agreed to discuss with us this evening. Please join me in welcoming Professor Bart Herrmann. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Robert. I uh, really appreciate it. I, I want to thank the National Humanities Center for giving me this opportunity, and especially for the two fellowships I had, <laughs> which were fantastic. At this point in his talk, our guest was experiencing audio difficulties 
and the center's tech support interrupted to fix the issue. Unfortunately, a portion of the talk was lost as a result. The recording resumes as Bart Ehrman reads a passage from his book, Heaven and Hell. After sweeping the courts, I decided to have a sauna, and so I cranked up the heat as high as it would go, stripped down, and went in for a good after-work sweat. As I sat on the upper wooden bench all alone late at night, perspiring profusely, I returned to my doubts and the questions I had about my faith and the fears I had for the possible outcomes of pursuing them. Fear is not just for my life, but even more for my afterlife. Then I started realizing, wow, it sure is hot in here. Oh man, is it hot in here. It is really, really hot in here. And then, naturally, the thought struck me. Do I really want to be trapped in a massively overheated sauna for all eternity? And what if the sauna is many, many times hotter than this? Do I want to be in fire forever? Is it worth it? For me at that moment, that meant, do I really want to change my beliefs and risk eternal torment? Uh, and so I go on and uh, and talk about how uh, this got me uh, really interested in the afterlife uh, because of a particular uh, existential crisis that I ended up uh, resolving by leaving my fundamentalist tradition and eventually uh, leaving Christianity uh, altogether. Um, uh, and uh, yet I continue to be a, uh, a scholar of the tr uh, Christian tradition. And uh, this book is about an important aspect of it namely the, uh, the, the afterlife that it uh, propounds. So uh, the way I'm going to do uh, the rest of this talk is I'm going to talk about the background to the views that uh, many Christians still have today and many non-Christians as well, that there are rewards and punishments in the life after death. I'm going to begin by talking about the Jewish tradition out of which Christianity emerged. Uh, this will be a very uh, brief uh, summary, of course, but it'll uh, give the basic uh, idea. I want to start with the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the Hebrew Bible is a very big book uh, that was written over a course of centuries by many different authors. And as a result, there are many different views about most things in the Hebrew Bible. One thing that is fairly, not entirely, but fairly consistent is that the Hebrew Bible does not teach that there is life after death. The Hebrew Bible as a whole teaches that there is death after death. In the Hebrew Bible, when a person dies, they are dead. Uh, that, that, is, that is it. Uh, the Hebrew Bible talks about people who are dead, who can no longer do anything, who can no longer worship God, and that God, in fact, does not even remember these people. Why doesn't he remember them? Because they don't exist anymore. Death is the end of the story. This was the common view throughout almost the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. And it was a view shared by, uh, by people living at the time in other cultures, uh, including uh, the ancient Greek author, uh, Homer, our first, uh, our first author to provide us with any extended literary text in the West, uh, had, a, had a similar view, uh, although in his case, there is a Hades where people kind of collect uh, for their afterlife, but it's a boring, uninteresting, lifeless existence. The uh, Hebrew Bible does not have that because the Hebrew Bible doesn't believe that the human person exists after their body dies. In the Hebrew tradition, unlike the uh, tradition that arose within Greek circles, 
there was no such thing as a soul that existed independently of the body. This might sound counterintuitive to us, but it was definitely the ancient Israelite view. Um, the way to understand it by analogy is that for ancient Israelites, the soul was more like what we think of as the breath. When, when somebody uh, is dead, they stop breathing. Their breath is stopped. But their breath doesn't go anywhere. It just stops. It no longer animates the body. And that's how Jews understood what we might call the soul. When God created Adam, he made Adam out of the dirt of the earth, and then he breathed life into Adam. The breath is what brought him life. And when he stopped breathing, he returned to the dirt from which he came, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And this is true of everybody uh, in, in the ancient Israelite understanding of things, that, uh, that once one is dead, that's the end of life, and there's no afterlife. Some people might be thinking, well, what about Sheol in the Old Testament? Sheol is a, uh, is a Hebrew term that occurs some 60 times in the Hebrew Bible. It's not the typical way that uh, Hebrew Bible authors talk about uh, death, per se. Uh, it occurs mainly in poet poetic sections, such as uh, in the Psalms. One very unfortunate thing about modern times is that modern English translations sometimes translate the term Sheol as hell. And so it certainly sounds like uh, the Hebrew Bible authors are talking about hell because the word hell shows up in the, in the English translations. But in fact, uh, the word is not hell the way we would think of it as the place your soul goes to get punished. It's, a, it's, it's called Sheol. Many people have assumed that Sheol is like the Greek Hades, like uh, Homer's Hades, where people live this kind of lifeless existence for all time, where they have no strength, no power, no wit, uh, nothing to do, no pleasure, and they basically are bored to death for eternity. Uh, people often think of that as what Sheol is, but I think that that's probably not right. If you actually look at how Sheol is used in the poetic books of the Old Testament, where it normally occurs, it is almost always used as a synonym for words like death or pit or grave. The pit and the grave are the places where your uh, remains are placed at death. Sheol is the place where your remains are placed. Probably it's not referring to a gathering place. Of, uh, of departed souls because they don't believe in soul. It's simply where your corpse is placed. You no longer exist. This is a view uh, throughout most of the Hebrew Bible, as I said, until the very end of the Hebrew Bible. By end, I don't mean the last book, Malachi. I mean the last book to be written, which was almost certainly the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is the first book in the Bible that envisions a different kind of uh, re result of death. It begins to imagine a resurrection of the dead. This is an important concept to explain, especially uh, for the understanding of the Christian tradition. Some ancient Jews came to think that it was not fair that death was the end of the story. You have people who are righteous, who follow what God demands who are good to other people. They're, they are good human beings, 
and they suffer miserably throughout life. They have horrible lives. And then they die, and that's the end of their story. You have other people who are absolute schmucks, who are filthy rich, uh, tyrants, who murder at will and don't care about anybody else. And they have outwardly a very good life, and then they die, and they get away with it. That's not right either. Jews started developing an idea about 200 years before Jesus that scholars have called an apocalyptic view. It's called apocalyptic from a Greek word, apocalypsis, that means a revealing. These people who came to think of the, came up with this view thought that God had revealed the truth about uh, the world and humans' place in it. The truth is that even though people who are righteous suffer now, that's going to come to an end. God, for some mysterious reason, has relinquished control of this world to forces of evil that are causing suffering, but God's going to put an end to it, and it's going to happen very soon. God's going to destroy the forces of evil, bring in a good kingdom on earth, not run by the tyrants who are power-hungry, but it's going to be run by God himself. They call it the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God will come to all the people who are on God's side. Those who are opposed to God are going to be destroyed. But what about people who died before it comes? This is when the doctrine of the resurrection shows up, when we have the rise of the resurrection. The idea is that people who have lived before are going to be raised from the dead at the future resurrection. Those who have sided with God and died will be raised and brought into God's good kingdom. Those who have been opposed to God are going to be raised to realize the error of their ways. And once they realize how they really blew it, they're going to be annihilated for all time. This then is the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And it is a doctrine that became central to Christianity. Let me stress, the resurrection of the dead refers to bodies coming back to life. It does not refer to souls going to heaven or hell. Bodies are going to be brought back to life, and they're going to be brought into the paradise that God uh, brings back. He first had the Garden of Eden, and humans blew that one, and then uh, they lost it. But God's going to bring it back, and people on earth are going to enter into it when they're raised from the dead. Jesus himself had this view of the future resurrection prior to the coming of the kingdom of God. People get confused when they read the New Testament because it talks about the kingdom of God, and uh, people assume that means heaven, living up with God in heaven and his kingdom up there, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's a kingdom. It's an actual place here on earth that is ruled by God through his Messiah, and it's coming soon, and when it comes, there'll be a resurrection and people will enter into it or be destroyed. And so I want to read a little bit from my book about the, from the chapter about Jesus and the afterlife, where I argue that Jesus did not believe in hell. Jesus did not believe in eternal punishment, e eternal torment. One of my theses in this book is that a close reading of Jesus' words shows that, in fact, he had no idea of torment for sinners after death. Death uh, for these sinners is irreversible, the end of the story. Their punishment is that they will be annihilated. 
never allowed to exist again, unlike the saved who will live forever in God's glorious kingdom. For example, early in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there are two gates through which a person can pass. One is narrow and leads to a difficult path. That is the way of life, and there are few people who take it. The other gate is broad, leading to an easy path. Most people take that route, but it is the road that leads to destruction. Jesus does not say it leads to eter eternal torture. Those who take this road will be destroyed, annihilated. But even so, you don't want to go that way. Most of Jesus' teachings about the coming judgment focus on this idea of ultimate and complete destruction. In this, he was very much like his predecessor, John the Baptist, who urged people to live lives pleasing to God by bearing good fruit. Those who failed to do so, uh, John declared, would be like bad trees that, when judgment comes, would be cut down and thrown into the fire. What happens to trees that are felled and burned? They are consumed out of existence. They don't keep burning forever. In another image uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus compares the coming judgment to a fisherman who brings in his haul of fish and separates the good fish from the bad. What does the fisherman do with the bad ones he doesn't want? He throws them away. He obviously doesn't torture them. They simply die. So too, Jesus says at the final judgment, Angels will separate the righteous from the wicked and toss the latter into the furnace. They'll go up in flames. The first century listener, for first century listeners, this destruction by fire would not conjure up images of eternal hellfire, but rather a house fire or the execution of criminals by burning. Someone burned at the stake weeps and screams in anguish while they're dying. But they don't weep and scream for 10 days or 10 millennia or 10 billion years. They die. Often Jesus expresses this image of destruction in even more repugnant terms, indicating that sinners who are excluded from God's kingdom will not only be killed, but will be refused decent burial, which, as I show earlier in the book, is the worst fate one could have in the ancient world, not to have a decent burial. Even worse than that, Jesus indicates that sinners will be cast unburied into the most unholy, repulsive, God-forsaken place that anyone in Israel could imagine, the valley known as Gehenna. Thus, for example, Jesus says that anyone who calls someone a fool will be liable to be cast into Gehenna, Matthew 5. Later, he says that it's better to gouge out your eye or amputate your hand if it sins and enter the kingdom maimed than to be tossed into Gehenna with eye and hand intact. Elsewhere, he says, it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and be drowned than to make a little one stumble and for your foul deed be cast into Gehenna. There we are told the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Gehenna, Gehenna is obviously serious business, but what is it? 
It is highly unfortunate that sometimes English translations of the New Testament, again, render the Greek word Gehenna as hell. That conjures up precisely the wrong image for Bible readers today, making them think that Jesus is referring to the underworld of fiery torment, where people go for eternal punishment for their sins. That is not what Gehenna referred to at all. On the contrary, it was a place well known among Jews in Jesus' day. It was a desecrated valley outside of Jerusalem, a place literally forsaken by God. And I go from there to describe the history of uh, Gehenna through the uh, Old Testament and then, uh, and then into, the, into the teachings of Jesus as this desecrated place that you absolutely don't want your, your remains to go. Jesus then taught that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Those who were righteous would enter into God's kingdom. Those who were unrighteous would be cast out of the kingdom and uh, would recognize the error of their ways and then would be annihilated. The Apostle Paul is arguably the most important figure in Christianity outside of Jesus. Paul's views eventually led to Christian understandings of heaven and hell. But originally, Paul shared the views of Jesus. Paul, like Jesus, was raised as a religious Jew. Paul did not know Jesus during his lifetime. Paul did not live in Israel. Paul lived outside of Israel in the Jewish diaspora. But he was uh, trained in the strict rudiments of his uh, religion. And it is quite clear from his writings that even before he became a follower of Jesus, he believed that there would be a future resurrection of the dead at the end of time. This idea of resurrection that started about 200 years before Jesus and was held by Jesus and by his disciples was widely held throughout Judaism at the time, including by Paul. At the end of time, God would breathe life back into bodies. There would be a resurrection. When Paul came to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead after being an opponent of the followers of Jesus, when Paul came to believe that Jesus got raised from the dead, he drew a conclusion that almost nobody would draw today. Paul's first conclusion when he came to think Jesus was raised from the dead was that the resurrection has started. The resurrection was supposed to be what happened at the end of time when the forces of evil were destroyed. A man has now been raised. That means the resurrection has begun. And that's why Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. It's an agricultural image. Just as uh, farmers uh, go out for the harvest, and on the first day, they have the first fruits come in. They harvest in the first fruits. They have a party that night to celebrate the first fruits, looking forward to what's going to happen next. Well, when do they harvest the rest of the crop? They don't wait 20 years or 100 years or 2,000 years. They go out the next day. When Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection, he means the rest is going to happen right away, which is why in several passages of Paul's early letters, he indicates that he will be alive when Jesus comes back. Jesus is going to return from heaven. He's going to raise everybody from the dead, and Paul will be alive to see it. That was Paul's original belief, and it's the belief you find in his earliest letters, such as 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. But then the end never came. Uh, Paul expected it to be soon. He told his converts, you can wait for it any day. You need, be, need to be ready, be prepared. You don't want to be caught unawares. And it didn't happen. And years passed. And then decades passed. And it still hadn't happened. 
and Paul ended up slightly changing his views. Paul continued to believe that there was going to be a resurrection, that Jesus was going to return, and the forces of evil would be destroyed, but he realized he may not be alive at the time. He might die first, and it made him think, what is going to happen to me then? Does it mean that I'm going to be non-existent until the resurrection? Paul thought he had a very close relationship with Christ now. You mean I'm going to die and lose that until whenever it happens in 20 years? That doesn't seem right. And so Paul came to think that when he died, he would be in Christ's presence just as he was in Christ's presence now. In other words, he thought there'd be some kind of postmortem existence for him. That ended up changing everything. One reason it ended up changing everything is because Paul's converts cordoned on to this idea that after death, something would happen before the resurrection. The reason they cordoned on to this was because Paul's converts were almost entirely Gentiles. Gentiles did not have the Jewish understanding of the soul as something that died with the body. Gentiles predominantly were trained in the Greek tradition in the Roman Empire, and in the Greek tradition, going back to Plato and before Plato, the soul lives forever. Plato taught the immortality of the soul. So when the body dies, the soul lives on. These Gentile converts of Paul were ready to accept the idea that the soul would live on uh, after death, and the believers would then live on with Christ in heaven. But all souls are immortal. What about those who are not followers of Christ? Well, they're not going to be rewarded. They must be punished. And so you start getting the idea that after death, you have rewards and punishments for the soul. And that's the birth of the Christian idea of heaven and hell, which in a way is a kind of amalgam between what Jesus taught and what Plato taught. Jesus taught that the God of Israel was going to reward and punish people in the life to come when they are raised from the dead. Plato taught that the soul is immortal. When those two ideas were combined, you end up with a Christian idea, which is not like Jesus' idea and not like Plato's idea. It's an amalgam. Souls are rewarded or punished. And even though they are souls, they experience pain and pleasure. So uh, you end up with a Christian view of heaven and hell that comes to be expressed in uh, some very, uh, very interesting ways in Christian literature that is not found uh, in the New Testament. I spent most of my time at my, with my uh, fellowship year at the National Humanities Center last year working on guided tours of heaven and hell uh, from early Christianity. These are the earliest forerunners of Dante. Uh, the earliest of which I want to read a little bit about uh, from my book, just a, a short page or about a page. A book known um, uh, as the Apocalypse of Peter was, uh, was uh, recognized by scholars for a long time to have existed in the second century. Scholars knew it existed, but we didn't have it. It's mentioned by church fathers from the period. In fact, in some circles, down to the fourth century, there were Christian authors who thought that this book, the Apocalypse of Peter, was a legitimate part of the New Testament. Some church leaders argued that it, rather than the Apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation, should be included in the canon. 
eventually it lost the battle and then disappeared from sight until a version of it was serendipitously uncovered by a French archaeological team digging near a place called Akmim in Upper Egypt in 1887. This account, the Apocalypse of Peter, is, uh, is a detailed description of the realms of the damned and the blessed. In the account, Jesus uh, describes in graphic and stunning detail to Peter, whom he shows these places and describes them to him, this in stunning detail, the torments awaiting the damned, who are being punished for their most characteristic sin while living. These punishments are often doled out according to the famous lex talionis, the law of retaliation, in which the punishment is modeled directly on the transgression, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so those who blasphemed the way of righteousness, that is those who maligned both the ways of God and the saints who tried to practice them, are hanged over unquenchable fire by their tongues, the body part most culpable in their sin. Women who plaited their hair, not just to make themselves beautiful, but also to seduce men into fornication, are hanged by their necks and hair over the eternal flames. The men they seduced are hanged by their genitals. In their case, they make a perpetual lament. We didn't know it'd come to everlasting punishment. <laughs> Indeed. Somewhat less expectantly, women who procured abortions are cast into an extremely deep pit up to their necks in excrement and foul substances. Opposite them are their aborted children who send forth flashes of lightning, piercing the eyes of their mothers who, for fornication's sake, have caused their destruction. So too, men and women who committed infanticide, for example, by exposing unwanted children to the elements, they're tormented forever while their murdered children look on from a place of delight. The uh, mothers experience a particularly graphic torment. Uh, in their case, uh, the mothers uh, uh, perpetually have uh, milk flowing from their breasts that congeals, and out of the milk comes beasts that devours the parents' uh, the parents' flesh. Well, there are lots of sins and punishments in this account, and it's not just these uh, these ones that you, you might expect. Uh, there are all sorts of ones that you probably wouldn't expect, including. Um, uh, People who commit usury, who give, who who loan money at interest, for example, are punished forever. And uh, and uh, girls who lose their virginity before they're married, even though the boys are not punished, and and uh, and so on. Uh, so this is what it leads to: uh, we get accounts of torments of heaven and hell uh, based on this new Christian amalgam that the soul goes to one place or another. Okay, well, that's the rough development of where the ideas of heaven and hell came from. They developed, of course, through the Middle Ages when uh, the idea of uh, purgatory itself developed, and they've come down to the modern age. And I want to talk about now us. Uh, I'm not going to talk about you. <laughs> I'm going to talk about me. <laughs> uh, I want to end with my, uh, my afterward, uh, another uh, one page uh, of how I end the book. Everyone who has ever lived has had to die. There, uh, then other people have their chance. I hope it will go on that for a very long time. While it does for me, I'll continue to reflect on life, death, and whether there's an afterlife. After reading many hundreds of authors dealing with these issues over the years, 
at the end of the day, I continue to throw in my lot with the great Socrates who said it best. I have a little section of what Socrates says at his trial about death and the afterlife. In Socrates' view, death was one of two things. Either it was a deep, dreamless sleep, far deeper than anything we experience normally. None of us is afraid of getting a fantastic night's sleep, and none of us regrets it. Death would be even better. Even if there is no activity or even consciousness, a restful, a restful cessation of existence, there is nothing to fear in it. In modern terms, this is like a general anesthetic. The alternative for Socrates, after death would come a great reunion, where he would be able to meet and converse with all those who went before. For the great Athenian philosopher, that meant having a chance to speak with the giants of his Greek culture, Orpheus, Hesiod, and Homer. For me, I suppose, it would be speaking with those of mine, Dickens, Shakespeare, and Jesus. Even though it's debated, in my mind, it's relatively clear which of these two choices Socrates, or rather his ventriloquist, Plato, actually thought. He believed death was the end of the story. But this was not a source of anxiety for him, and it doesn't need to be for us either. It is instead a motivation to love this life as much as we can for as long as we can, to enjoy it to its utmost as far as possible, and to help others do the same. If all of us do that, we will live on after death, not in personal consciousness once our brains have died, but in the lives of those we have touched. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bart. We have several questions that have come in. And um, let me start with a question that asks that given that Jesus' Jewish background did not contain the notion of an afterlife, can you describe the way that Platonic thought did or did not lay the foundations for the thought that the soul could suffer or not in the afterlife? Yes. Uh, how, how is it that if the soul is immortal uh, but isn't connected with the body, how can, the, how can it feel pain, for example, or how can it feel pleasure if they're, in, in our thinking, if there's no nerve endings? Uh, it's a little more confusing to us than it would have been to uh, most ancient Greeks. Uh, there were Platonists who did have the idea that uh, the soul was a completely immaterial thing, the way most people today think. Our thinking, though, has been largely uh, formulated, formed more by uh, developments within uh, modern Western philosophy, especially uh, with Descartes and the followers of Descartes. In ancient Greece, most people who believed in a soul actually thought that that soul was a material essence. It wasn't the coarse kind of essence that our body is. It was a much more refined kind of, of essence, but it was still made of stuff. It wasn't immaterial, it was a different kind of material. And since it was a material entity, it could still experience uh, material experiences. It could still feel uh, pleasure and pain. And so that's why, uh, why Platonists, uh, probably going back, back to Plato, uh, thought that, uh, that, in fact, it was possible for, uh, for souls to experience uh, pleasure and pain. There's a question about, uh, in the Jewish tradition, is there a belief in a ghost or in ghosts, ghosts that could come back to 
communicate. And there's a reference to 1 Samuel uh, 28. Yes, that's right. Um, so as I, as I said kind of briefly, um, the, the Old Testament is a very big book uh, written over hundreds of years by different authors living in different places with different views. And so there are, there are lots of views about everything. Um, the standard view that I laid out, the, the view found in almost all of the authors, is that the, the person dies and that's the end of the story. But there is very good evidence that people uh, believed, uh, some, that some people believe, not the authors of the Bible, that in fact uh, there was some kind of ghost that could exist afterwards. People do often appeal to this passage in 1 Samuel, where the King Saul is in really real trouble. He needs a counselor, but his counselor Samuel has died. And so Saul arranges with a, uh, a woman, sometimes uh, called the, uh, well, she, she sometimes the traditional in the King James, she's the witch of Endor. She's a medium. Uh, and this medium raises Samuel up to give Saul advice. It turns out to be not good advice because he says, look, you shouldn't have done this. And, you know, because you've disobeyed God by doing this, uh, you're going to die in the battle tomorrow. <laughs> and so, uh, so it's not, it's not, it's not help. But, but Samuel does come up out of, out of the grave. And so what's that all about? Uh, I, I have a long discussion of it in my, in my book where I try to show that it's not quite clear what's going on here. Uh, it's not clear if if Samuel actually had an existence before Saul call, had him called up. It may be that he was just gone and that he was brought back up out of his grave just to answer the question. But normally he was like having Socrates deep, dark sleep with nothing happening. Uh, that that's that's a possibility. Apart from that particular passage, though, there are a number of laws in the uh, in the Jewish law in the Torah, the law of Moses, forbidding necromancy, which is consulting with dead spirits. That shows that certainly there were people in Israel who believed in dead spirits who could communicate and probably prophesy. Uh, you don't you don't pass a law against something that nobody's doing, and so it shows that probably there were people who who believed this, just as there were people who believed all sorts of. There's a question also about Plato and the Greeks um, in terms of the afterlife and whether or not the Greeks actually had a notion of the afterlife. Uh, there's clearly a place that uh, in Homer that Odysseus can go to see his mother, Tiresias, and others. So what about that? And secondly, the questioner asks, do you see Plato as originating the idea of the immortality of the soul out of nothing or does his conception also have a ge genealogy? Yes, great question. Homer absolutely has an account of Odysseus going to the underworld. Uh, it's, um, it's called the Nequia, which is kind of a term for sort of like necromancy. It's book 11 of the, uh, of the Odyssey. It's our, uh, one of our oldest accounts. Uh, it's the oldest account in the Western tradition of somebody making a given, being, you know, having kind of a tour. Of, of the realm of the dead. It's a, it's a different way of expressing death after death because these people are scarcely alive. Uh, they are, they're called shadows or shades. Uh, they have as much vibrancy as your shadow has. Uh, they have no, they're called witless, they're called powerless. Even the great Achilles has zero strength. Uh, and so, and Achilles complains and says he would, he'd rather be a servant to a peasant on earth than to be down and to be alive than to be down here in Haiti. So it's very, very bad. Uh, but it's what Homer imagined. Some centuries after that, uh, Greeks did start imagining that there is an afterlife, probably for the same reason Jews eventually did, that it, it's, it's a question of justice. 
uh, if there are gods in the world, there must be some kind of justice. And so there has to be some kind of uh, afterlife. Plato is the one who uh, most uh, significantly pronounces this view in his, uh, especially you find it, especially in his dialogue with the Phaedo, um, which is this discussion about the immortality of soul that he's having with some of his followers uh, the day of his death, before he drinks the, the hemlock, where he tries to convince them the soul uh, is immortal. Did Plato uh, have predecessors? The, word, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, there, are, there were predecessors to Plato with this view. The problem is most of the, almost all of these works uh, don't survive at all, and the ones that do survive, uh, survive in, uh, in frag fragments. But there definitely was a lineage coming out of Plato, so he, he did not invent this idea. And even in the dialogue, Plato sometimes will tell myths. He tells, several times he tells myths of people giving guided tours of heaven and hell. And in these myths, um, he, he says, well, this is what we're told. Socrates says, well, we've been told this. In other words, he's acknowledging that people have said this, and he's, he's using it for his own purposes in his dialogue. There's also a question um, asking for your comments about Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones coming back to life. Yes. Where does this fit in? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So uh, in Ezekiel, um, um, there is a, a famous passage uh, that uh, got made into the popular song. We all knew when we were kids about, you know, the ankle bone being connected to the shin bone, uh, bones and bones, bones. Uh, and it's a it's a vision of the uh, Valley of Dry, uh, of dry Bones. Uh, Ezekiel. The context is Ezekiel is is uh, writing his uh, his prophecy after the uh, nation of uh, of uh, Judea had been taken had been destroyed and taken captive. The leaders had all been taken back, captive back to Babylon. The nation didn't exist anymore as a nation. It was controlled by the Babylonians. God is instructing Ezekiel that uh, that in fact he has not forgotten his people. Uh, and he shows him a valley that is filled with human bones. They're completely dry, no skin on them, no flesh, nothing, dry bone. And the Lord asked Ezekiel, uh, can these bones uh, come back to life? And Ezekiel says, I don't know, you know. <laughs> and God tells him to breathe, into, to, to, to prophesy, to speak, to inspire the, the bones. He prophesies to the bones to come back to life, and flesh starts appearing on them, and sinews, and and muscles, and, and they come back, uh, they take human form, and then uh, they come back to life. Uh, and so uh, it's a resurrection of the dead. And it's often read as the first instance of the resurrection of the dead in the Bible, but it's quite clear that Ezekiel is not talking about individuals coming back to life, because when God tells him what he has just seen, he tells him that he has seen the, the nation of Israel come back to life. And he indicates that this shows that he will restore Israel to their land. It means that Israel, the leaders will return to the land of Israel and they will restart the nation and that it will be reborn as a nation. So he's not talking about individuals coming back to life post-mortem. It's an image for the, the resurrection of the nation Later, Jews took this to be a once they developed the idea of a resurrection. A couple hundred years later, they they use it to say, "Well, see, even Ezekiel thought that." But it, when you're reading the context, it's clearly not talking about that. There's a question about uh, the ancient Egyptians' belief in the afterlife and their need to take possessions uh, with them, with one's mummified body, into the, into their tombs. Did this inform the Christian belief in the afterlife at all? Is there any connection? 
So in my book, I had to decide uh, which cross-cultural influences to look at. Uh, and uh, I did decide to talk about Persian religion and Zoroastrianism. I decided not to talk about Egypt because I came to the conclusion that many, many other people have come to, that in fact, Egyptian views did not have an impact on either Judaism or Christianity in their views. There are some commonalities in places, including the idea that uh, people who are well-off schmucks now are gonna be punished later, and people who are poor uh, lowlifes now might be rewarded later, so that's a commonality. And another commonality are these, these, uh, are these things left to grave, grave sites. Uh, in Egypt, of course, it's the, you know, it's the pharaoh, it's, it's the, the upper-class elite that have that. Uh, but uh, in both Judaism and then uh, later in Christianity, we do have archaeological findings of grave sites where people are, are have, have objects, familiar objects that are buried with them. The pro and I talk about this in my book. The problem is that these material remains in grave sites are not self-interpreting. We don't know what they mean. And everybody kind of, most people just hearing about this just kind of assume, well, you know, if a woman's buried with her cooking pots, that must mean that she has to cook in the afterlife. And so they're giving her her pots, right? So yeah, well, okay, maybe. Uh, but there are lots of interpretations. I mean, when my when my, my dad died <laughs> 30 years ago, we we put a we put his pipe, he smoked a pipe all the time. Uh, we put a, a pipe in his in his casket. It wasn't because we thought he was going to need a good smoke up there. We just, you know, it was to commemorate this. And so maybe that these are commemorations. It, you know, so it's it's hard to know what what it all means uh, uh, in the in the Greek, uh, Roman, and Jewish and Christian traditions. So there's a question about what Jesus meant by the kingdom of heaven is within you, if the kingdom of heaven is actually physically a physical place. Yes. So. Uh, this uh, this this saying of Jesus is uh, is found only in the Gospel of Luke, and it is a mistranslation of uh, what is going on in the context. Uh, it's often translated, "The kingdom of God is within you," and so it sounds like, "Oh, you know, I've got heaven inside of me," uh, and that's not at all what Jesus is saying. You can you can actually discern that without reading the Greek, just by looking at the context. Jesus is talking to his arch enemies, the Pharisees, when he says this. They want to know about the coming kingdom, and Jesus says this thing. What he says is actually the kingdom of God is among you. In other words, uh, this is a later view from, from what you find in the earlier Gospels, Matthew and Mark. In Matthew and Mark, the kingdom of God is this kingdom that's going to come to earth with the resurrection of the dead and the destruction of the forces of evil at the end of time. By the time you get to Luke, you get the idea that, in fact, there's something of the kingdom present now. And Jesus in Luke is the center of the kingdom. So when Jesus says the kingdom is among you, he doesn't mean in your heart. He means it's in your midst, meaning me. I am representing this kingdom here and now. And so if you follow my ways, you will, in effect, be dwelling in the kingdom. So that's, that's Pierce Billings. There's a question also about uh, the geography of heaven uh, as a place nestled within or in the clouds is the questioner asked, is this a direct adaptation of Mount Olympus uh, as part of Roman or Greek mythology? Yeah, Mount Olympus. So it's not just in the Greek, uh, Greek and Roman mythology. It's a common view that the gods are, uh, are up high or above. Probably it originates from the idea that gods can see everything. And to see everything, you need to have a high perspective. And so the god is on the highest, uh, highest mountain. Um, 
this is taken up in the Jewish tradition itself, of course. Um, it, uh, God is up above. And so in the Jewish tradition, God, God, there is a heaven. So when I say that Jews didn't believe in heaven, I, I mean what they, they didn't believe is that souls went there. Human souls don't go. There is a heaven in Jewish tradition. It's where God lives, and it's up there. That's the problem with people building the Tower of Babel. The God has to confuse their languages because they're building this tower, and they're almost up here. We can't let them up here. And so he, he stops their building project, and, and so God is up there. And so in the New Testament, when Jesus dies, he goes up there. Uh, and the idea is that God is really up there. I mean, if you, if you had a spaceship, you'd get up there. And so when Jesus returns, he comes down. And then his followers go up and meet him, and then they come back down. So it's all this up and down business because they have this kind of three-story universe where you have uh, this, the above world and this world and then the underworld. There's a question also about the belief in heaven and hell. And it's a question that asks you, do you think it's simply people's need to have justice rendered? Um, I don't think it's only that. Um, I think there are a lot of things that figure into it. And my sense is that today, uh, people don't sit around and, you know, it's not that they start out not believing anything. And then they think, you know, I think there has to be justice. So I'm going to imagine an afterlife. It's not, it doesn't really work that way. People are born into a culture and they are born with certain assumptions and certain beliefs. And it takes a lot to change those beliefs. Um, a lot of people, uh, I, I think originally, I think originally justice was a major factor in the development of the ideas of heaven and hell. And today, most there are a lot of people who believe in heaven and hell who believe in it because they are eager for the justice because they're getting burned here and they really want to be uh, and you know they don't think it's fair for the others and so they want heaven. You know, a lot of people have other reasons. They want to see their relatives. You know, their their uh, their lost parents or their uh, or their lost children or their you know. And so it isn't just justice. It's it's you know a sense that that all must be right with world. That that's just. But also just for me personally, I think. You know, I want that. And so it's probably true. There's also a question uh, asking if you have an opinion about an interpretation by N.T. Wright uh, regarding uh, the, the idea that heaven is not the final stop, but that upon the return of Jesus, all resurrected people would return to this earth in their spiritualized human form. Uh, yeah, this isn't just a view of N.T. Wright. I mean, this is the this is this is the uh, traditional Christian doctrine. Um, the Christian, the early Christians had a problem once they created this amalgam that I've talked about—that the soul goes to heaven and hell, because they had the earlier view that the bodies get resurrected. And uh, how does it work both ways? So, I mean, is it the bodies live forever on earth, or is it the soul goes to heaven and hell? The dominant view became that the soul went to heaven and hell. That's what most people believe today and probably don't even notice that if they're in church, they're saying a creed, they're confessing a creed that says, I believe in the resurrection of the body or the resurrection of the flesh. And so if the soul is going to heaven and hell, what's this resurrection of the flesh? And so the way they've worked it out is that it's a two-stager. You die, you go to heaven or hell, and then... You, uh, you're uh, at the end of time, the resurrection happens and your, your body comes back to life, but it comes back as this glorified body. And so it's the two stage thing where the first, the soul's in heaven or in hell, and then the body, uh, then, then the body, so. Let me ask you a concluding question uh, that speaks to the moment that we're um, currently in. And that is the idea of the plague 
And is this an Old Testament or a New Testament concept? And, how, and if it's both, how does it differ? So um, there are lots of plagues uh, in the Bible. And um, throughout the Old Testament, the answer for why there are plagues is almost always that God is punishing people. Um, they're disobeying God. And so this is a way that he uses to get them to repent and turn back to him. Uh, and so, uh, for example, in, in Moses, when Moses does these, the, the 10 plagues against Egypt, uh, when Pharaoh won't let my people go, this is God doing this to punish Pharaoh and to convince him of something. But it continues on through the prophets. Read the book of Amos. There's a locust, you know, the locusts that take out the entire crop. God did it. There are, there are epidemics. God has done it. Uh, there, these bad things are always what God has done uh, to, to get people to repent. By the time you get to the New Testament, you have the apocalyptic view that I described earlier, where it's not God doing this. It's the forces of evil doing it. They're the devil and the demons and the powers aligned against God. They hate God. They hate God's people. And so they're bringing misery on earth. It's interesting that both of those views are uh, being pronounced today in response to our crisis. You have people who are saying that God is punishing us. Um, uh, for example, uh, you have plenty of people on the far right who are saying it's because of the LGBTQ community that God is showing us we have to change our ways or some other kind of gross immorality that we need to change. You have other people who are saying this is a sign of the end of time. The powers of evil have been unleashed on the earth and God is soon going to intervene and destroy them and bring in a good kingdom. So if you just hold on for a little while longer, it'll be okay. You get both sides and of course, lots of other sides, including the scientists who say it's got nothing to do with that. And uh, I must say for myself, when it comes to developing the virus, I'm going to go with the science. <laughs> so. Thank you very much, Professor Bart Ehrman for a wonderful conversation. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about the programs and the mission of the National Humanities Center, please go to nationalhumanitycenter.org. I'm Robert Newman. Please stay safe and stay well. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.